ready to go. Are you? Oh, yeah. I'm a pro. I'm a pro at this now. I've been doing this for a little while. So I'm, a, I'm not new to the podcasting game. I'm not a Johnny-come-lately. Yeah. yeah when that red light goes on, I'm ready to... Yeah. I'm ready to... Ready to go. Ready to start riffing. Okay. You're at any time. stalling for time right now. But, nope. All right. Nope. Not trying to just kill a couple minutes before we... <laughs> before we get, get to our the, interview. The bulk. Yeah. <laughs> With Brad Johnson. This Brad is a, that Johnson. was a good one. Yeah. It was good. We, You know what? We've been having a little bit of success lately talking about the climate and climate policy and not feeling horrible after. I think people like that, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of nice. It's a nice refreshing change from the way we normally do things. Yeah, there was a. I was going through some of our Apple podcast reviews, which people, if you want to, and you want to leave a good review, head on over to Apple Podcasts and please leave us a positive five-star review. Uh, someone last year was like, this show makes me want to slip my wrists. It's like, <laughs> okay, I guess we could improve on that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Like I, I'm sorry, I didn't create the problems. I'm just talking about them. Yeah, we can just upgrade people from wanting to slit their wrist to just wanting to just climb into a hole and just stay there for that's, a little while. That's an upgrade. That's the this sweet was... spot. <laughs> <laughs> this is good though. For. This was not. This was not as doomer as some climate episodes have been, because there's good news, and Brad is here to talk about the good news on the climate front. Yep. So. Yeah, definitely no, stay it was, tuned it was excellent. That. And Brad's the Brad's the writer of the the uh, Substack newsletter Hill Heat, which I That's think if right. you're interested in in climate policy and how that how that pertains to the U.S. government, uh, that's definitely something you want to uh, give a follow to. Really yeah, good we've stuff. Got, we've got a link in the description. Go go subscribe. Uh, throw him a follow. Uh, definitely good authority on on climate news and climate science. So really really happy he joined us today. Yeah, but Rob. Did you know I'm heading to the Big Apple this weekend? The Windy City. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's one there, <laughs> I guess. Uh, it's all the same. Yes, Rob, I will be heading to glamorous New York City this weekend, this Saturday night, to speak at the Internet Culture Festival uh, put on by Digital Void. And I've done one of Digital Void's events before when it was in D.C., and it was a blast. And they invited me to come up to their New York event this Saturday night, uh, the tenth, I believe. Uh, let me look at the yeah, yeah, yes, I knew that. And uh, I have something I think will be funny and informative. So I'll there's a link in the description. If you want to get tickets, you can use the promo code ICF for a five dollar discount. They're already eighteen bucks. That knocks you down to thirteen. And a uh, friend of the show, Manny Fidel, will also be speaking, and he and I have something up our sleeve that we think is going to make you laugh, going to make you cry, going to make you feel all the emotions. It's, oh it's going to be great. So New York, uh, it's at a place called Caveat. I think it's on the Lower East Side or Midtown, somewhere in there. It's in Manhattan. I'm sorry. I didn't pick the location. If you live in Brooklyn, just take the train. You'll be fine. You'll live. Uh, but yeah, it's in Midtown, I think. Uh, it's going to be great. It's on Saturday night. So So please come out. Would love to say hi and would love to uh, fill the place for a bunch of really funny and informative presentations and talks. Yeah, and a couple of other friends of the show appear in there. It seems like it's going to be pretty interesting. I imagine my invite must have just got lost in the mail, possibly with like a border thing, Canadian border thing. No matter. I barely thought about it at yeah. all. 
didn't There's even occur no to Canadian me. There's a Canadian policy, at yeah. least, so <laughs> which is fair. I, underst- I understand that, um, and I actually support that. Um, <laughs> and I also know that New York is not the windy city. Okay, that was a little gag, little rib one of your for some of our japes. One of my famous japes. That's right for our American <laughs> listeners. I am aware of that. Just in yeah. case anyone was getting ready to type up their angry missive to the uh-huh. Save insurgents. It. Twitter, save it. Yes, please, please do. Unless you're a paid intern, and then you can do whatever you want. Then you're allowed. Yeah. To become a paid intern, though, you can head on over to theinsurgents.substack.com. Subscribe to the show. It's just five bucks a month. You get access to a bonus episode every week, and the honorary distinction, the title bestowed upon you, of paid intern. So become a paid intern of the insurgents today. It's just five bucks a month. You support the show. You get a nice little badge that you can wear around the office. Theinsurgents.substack.com. We really appreciate everybody who subscribes. It keeps the show going. Uh, It helps it make it sustainable. So thank you to everyone. Yes. Thank you very much to our beloved army of paid interns. That's right. The Insurgents Podcast. We couldn't do this without you. That's right. We couldn't keep the, the content mill turning. It's the fuel that drives us. Exactly. And some of you are physically sacrificing your bodies for that fuel, and we appreciate it. You know? Sleeping mm-hmm. at the office. That's right. We've converted the office. We've put beds in there and stuff now, <laughs> so you don't even have to go home. And that's totally legal, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally fine to do that. Uh, but yeah, let's get to our conversation <laughs> with Brad. <laughs> that's a conversation that. for another day. Yes, I think so. Yeah, let's definitely get to our conversation with uh, Hill Heat's Brad Johnson. Really good one. Uh, Very much enjoyed it. I think you will too. Brad's going to be joining the show right after this. I just had some McDonald's. Yeah, McDonald's. Like we started, we started off, we started off talking about food in the last podcast, and I, I'm generally a McDonald's uh, proponent. My kid really likes Happy Meals, so you know whether it's whether it's good or bad, I, I tend to eat McDonald's a fair amount. Really, the difference in quality from when you first buy it—if you wait any longer than five, ten minutes to consume it. The qual- it's amazing how fast the quality drastically plummets. I'm just generally not a fan. No? Yeah, the, the fries really congeal. <laughs> I think there's a lot of just congealing fat yeah. that happens. <laughs> Everyone said before I went to Europe last year, like, oh, you got to try McDonald's there. It's so much different. Uh, so I did. I was in Switzerland, and I got uh, Royale with cheese. Is that what it's called? Because of the metric uh, system. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it like it tasted the same. Like I, I didn't notice some like substantial difference. Everyone acted like it was so different in other countries, and I just I just don't see it. I thought that was the whole point of McDonald's is that it's supposed to taste the same wherever you are. Yeah, it's brand consistency. Yeah, although sometimes in foreign countries they'll do different menu items. That's kind of interesting. That's intriguing, but yeah, that's that's it. I just I don't get yeah. it. Well, I'm sorry, you're. Your food was cold? Is that it was point? not very good, no. Okay. I waited too long to consume the McDonald's. <laughs> uh, but we're joined today. Live and learn, I guess. <laughs> Anything else on McDonald's? 
Jones. No, that's all. God, that's all the material. <laughs> all right. Hey, listen, we got to do chit- been sponsored by McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, we got to do a little chit chat. You know, we can't just dive right into things. You know how things go. Yeah, that's just what I, I had mean, today. You're really okay? going with the like. You put the cold and the cold open with with old McDonald's. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but Brad Johnson, author of Hill Heat over on Substack, joins us today. Uh, Brad, we're, we're so happy to have you here. Uh, you're breaking down uh, in your newsletter and, and with us, uh, this mansion dirty deal is permitting reform. This, this, this thing he's been trying to push now for a few months. Um, but, you know, before we get into that, Brad, uh, t- tell us about Hill Heat. And, and, and again, we're, we're really happy to have you here. Oh, thanks. I was a little worried when you introduced me and said that I was breaking down. Uh, but <laughs> I, yeah, I, write a mostly daily climate politics newsletter that's focused mostly on uh, what's happening in the nation's capital, but also some degree what's happening around the world. And I've been, I've kind of gone back to my roots. Uh, 10 years ago, I was at uh, Think Progress and was a climate blogger there. And in the intervening years, I've uh, worked for some climate advocacy groups and Help start up Climate Hawks Vote, which was a PAC and C4 that uh, did advocacy and endorse Climate Hawk candidates. And now I'm in D.C. and uh, trying to, I guess, document the atrocities and some of the victories, which we actually had. So it was a, a fun. So this has actually been a, a more fun week than I was expecting. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All around. Uh, Brad, before we go any further, though, we have a question to ask you. And we ask all of our guests the same one. And now it's your turn. Brad Johnson, are you a gamer? <laughs> no, yeah, no, no. <laughs> you kind of waffled there. Well, fr- <laughs> I mean, if it's like, have you ever played board games? But the thing I can say is if you're like, have you watched all of Action Button Season 1? Then I can say yes. Okay. I don't know what that is, but we'll count it. <laughs> me either. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good if, to me. If you don't know who uh, Tim Rogers is, uh, then you are in for a treat. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm the type of guy who I will watch the, the full playthroughs of video games on YouTube, but I have, I did play uh, Disco Elysium recently, and that's oh, a that good counts. Game. That definitely counts. Yeah, of course. That's, at, that's at my gamer. speed. I mean, does it count, though, if you save scum your way through it to only get the good ending? I think so. I think I stopped. Yeah. I stopped playing when <laughs> I went up to the Union guys and picked a fight with them, and they killed me. <laughs> <laughs> so I wish I would have saved more frequently. <laughs> oh, it has an autosave. Like, you know, you just have to... <laughs> I think that's it. fine. That counts. We're 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 rounding up here. Brad right. Johnson game. I think I think when I played Disco Elysium, I think someone that had played already gave me a tip which is to not ever take off the the necktie. Which did end up coming it which did end up working in my favor in the end. That's a little little hot tip for all the gamers out there. Keep keep that necktie on. Yeah. It comes in handy later. Yeah. Uh I need to finish it. Eventually, I will. Just oh, it's it's very worth it. It really is. Yeah, I I haven't really gotten past that big gate with the character that I guess like it seems like a pretty heavy handed caricature of uh, Peter Dow. <laughs> um, <laughs> look, I'm serious because like the, I guess the guys who made it, even though they're from somewhere in Europe, 
like really pay closely to like American lefty politics and some of the original voices were just like people from Twitter and other podcast hosts. And one of the characters like looks, it's like a spitting image of Peter Dow. And I think they made this before his rebrand, before he like turned like super lefty. Right. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, all right, we'll count it. Brad's a gamer. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not Rob. anti-game. Well, that's good. Then it would have been a hostile conversation. But it's funny. I actually literally was having uh, this almost identical conversation uh, with somebody who, uh, with Mark Slutsky, who is, a, uh, among other things, a video game writer. And I was saying that I wasn't really a gamer. And he's like, everyone's a gamer. So. Yeah. That's also our stance, the official stance of this <laughs> podcast as well so <laughs> all right it counts it counts rob did you you wanted to mention something about the the new Fortnite season you you dm me the other night yeah, I, well, I was yet. surprised it didn't come up in our last conversation i haven't been home in like two weeks right right so you haven't tried it out yet no oh interesting i think this is the first time i've ever been leveled up uh, higher than you did you uh, say that you haven't done this. it in two weeks i haven't well i haven't been home in two weeks so in a fortnight Oh! Oh shit! That's so good. We got gaming-related humor Look at now. This <laughs> very cool. That's <laughs> uh, no, good. You, I've, I'm looking forward to uh, getting your hearing your thoughts on it. It's a totally brand new map. I'm still kind of figuring all that out. It's kind of a diff- way different vibe. There's dirt bikes. Um, I like new that. weapons are pretty cool. All right. Yeah, I'll be home. It's pretty good. We'll have to head home and then go to New York for an event. I'll talk about in the intro, but. Monday, I'll I'll start leveling up. So enjoy your your lead on me in the battle pass while you can. <laughs> okay, sounds good. I will. <laughs> Let's get to the news though. Uh, uh, Brad is here to talk about, uh, among other things, this mansion dirty deal that he tried to uh, put into this must pass uh, NDAA, this military spending bill. Uh, now, Brad, for people who don't know what this dirty deal is or this pipeline reform push that he's been. Uh, advocating for and trying to weasel into other pieces of must-pass legislation. Uh, what is it, and why should people be concerned about it? Uh, well, we kind of have to go back to the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, was the the big kind of hyper-pared-down and mansionized version of Build Back Better, which was attached to uh, reconciliation legislation, which meant that the Road Democrats didn't need any Republican votes to, to get it through. And that was the surprise deal that included hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in climate and energy related spending, some of which uh, was very good and some of it was very bad, which is why you had kind of both environmental organizations and oil companies happy with it. And But part of that deal was that Joe Biden, the president, and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi promised Joe Manchin that his, what, quote-unquote, permanent permit reform bill uh, would also uh, be passed later. Uh, Senate rules didn't allow it to be part of this package, but it, it includes both uh, mandating the construction of a frac gas pipeline that's going through uh, West Virginia called the uh, Mountain Valley Pipeline and would fast track uh, permitting for uh, a wide array of uh, energy infrastructure. So that includes 
and that's the reason that there have been some advocates for it, uh, fast tracking, uh, permitting for like electric transmission, uh, and potentially for renewable projects, but also, uh, tying them to fast tracking, uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, like more fat, frac gas, uh, facilities, uh, export facilities, pipelines, and uh, oil drilling. So the, when, the thing to know is that it wasn't just Joe Manchin trying to do this. This was something that the White House has been pushing, that uh, Schumer has been pushing, and they tried to attach it to the uh, – what was the kind of like the must-pass, uh, keep the government open uh, spending bill that had to pass in September – and it looked like, and so that was when it, it looked like it was going to pass, uh, but it was stopped by a honestly kind of like surprising coalition of both kind of what we consider progressive Democrats, but also uh, more uh, conservative ones and that like were not willing to have pipelines go through their districts. And uh, like one of the key leaders was... Don McKeegan, who was a representative from Virginia, who, while a member of the New Democratic Party and not a progressive, was uh, an environmental justice leader. And he had been working for years on this uh, permit reform bill that was like designed around environmental justice principles. So he was genuinely pissed off about this. And uh, he and other people, both in the House, but also uh, some key Senate leaders, with like very aggressive pushing from the uh, environmental movement uh, stopped this uh, really at, at the last minute. And unfortunately uh, in the last few weeks, uh, McKeegan has uh, passed away. He had uh, colorectal cancer that he had been fighting for over a decade. And so that was one of the things that helped put the kibosh on this latest attempt, which was that, you know, the basically Democrats were just not going to go and let uh, this mansion bill pass, uh, you know, like literally on the day that they're going to uh, McKeeshan's funeral. Yeah. So one of the things that opponents pointed out that doing this uh, right on the heels of passing the Inflation Reduction Act would undercut some of the you know, steps in the right direction, the steps forward on addressing climate change. The, the climate provisions within uh, the IRA, uh, many argue, especially in you know some more establishment democratic circles, this is the biggest and best and boldest uh, thing a country has ever done on this front. Uh, wherever those chips fall, it's definitely, again, like a step in the right direction. Doing this on the heels of that seems counterintuitive if that's your broader goal. Um, could you... Yeah, definitely. It, I, I feel like you definitely have some thoughts on, on the climate provisions in the IRA, uh, because some of the projections that we've seen were like pretty had a pretty wide range. It's like, oh well, you know, it could have this impact or this impact, and they're just they're you know totally disproportionate and uh, far off. There's a pretty wide range of outcomes here. Um, have you seen any new information or research or studies showing a little bit more of a refined take, and also the impact of this? Uh, the, the permitting reform and, and Manchin's deal. Uh, do you have like anything concrete that would help people understand just how disastrous this would be for the environment? Uh, I mean, one challenge is that the there, there ha I don't, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any recent modeling since the big push in 
in August and September, but that's been released publicly. Uh, one thing to know about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it's comprised m almost entirely of incentives uh, for doing stuff as opposed to penalties for, say, polluting. And so what the kind of like long-term impact will be in terms of what our total pollution as a nation will look like is uh, kind of up in the air. Uh, one thing that the act does that is why there was criticism uh, from the start and would be kind of double down with the, the, the pipeline permitting deal is that uh, it, it, it ties renewable energy uh, development with fossil fuel development. Now, kind of like the modelers are like, well, the fossil fuels will probably be uh, like exported and the impact of the incentives for new drilling and oil and gas would uh, be uh, offset by incentives for electrification of vehicles and like in heating and the like. And like that might be the case, but like one thing also recognizes when they say like offset, what they mean is like, well, okay, if it's being exported to like Europe or wherever, then we don't really need to count it. And that certain very, very much doesn't uh, address the problem that if you say live in uh, on the Gulf Coast or what's kind of known as the Permian Basin, which is the whole, this whole region going to stretches from Louisiana into Texas, that uh, people have figured out how to extract massive amounts of natural gas and oil from through novel fracking technology, uh, that doesn't help them. And right now there are, I think, literally dozens of new uh, petrochemical factories and LNG export plants and processing facilities and pipelines that are being brought online right now, uh, partly as a result of decisions made under the Trump presidency, but also ones that are being approved right now by the Biden administration. And so if you live there, and that's that region is known as Cancer Alley now, and basically if you live there, you're pretty much guaranteed to die an early death from some really horrifying form of cancer. So people who live there are have never weren't are were less pleased about the IRA and were very not uh, pleased by the the Mansion's deal. So he, Mansion tries to get this into the NDAA, which should pass this week. And uh, you know, people when when murmurs of his his intent. Uh, started to spread on the Hill, and in Washington, a lot of people uh, stood up and became vocal. And now we just saw today that there it's not going to be included, um, and he even tried to appeal to some Republicans to get it through, uh, and was unsuccessful in doing so. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about the opposition uh, to, uh, you know, take two for Manchin, yeah. Um, and do you think this is something that he could try again as we we still have a couple more weeks in a lame duck period before the new Congress is sworn in? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's uh, stated his intention to offer it as an amendment uh, to the bill, um, but which I think, and you should not quote me on this necessarily, but I'm pretty sure that would require 60 votes. 
uh, which you would have a lot of trouble getting even more than get the 50 votes that, uh, but the, the, and the other point is just remember that like the thing to remember about this is that this is something that president Biden has said that he wants and will keep pushing for, uh, and like Manchin is not like Manchin. It was genuinely comical the first time around when Manchin uh, knew that he needed some Republican votes in the Senate to get uh, it it through, and uh, he got he was sincerely surprised that Republicans weren't uh, his friend. It was it was uh, yeah. he got to the point where he was like almost literally just whining about why they don't why don't you like me. Um, <laughs> It's that and, classic Democratic move of if we just propose all this conservative legislation, surely these conservatives will vote for it. You know, but it doesn't make I mean, sense. I don't like, get this. And, What's I going mean, on? you know, and sincerely, like, I mean, he's, you know, very functionally, uh, especially on this stuff, like indistinguishable from a Republican. Uh, but uh, the, you know, the incentive to, you know, not give Biden a win, even if it's a win for their team, uh, is was essentially too strong and also just like i think people just don't like joe manchin very much and that's one of the weird things about the senate is a lot of it really is built on on relationships like that but the second time around there was the same situation where like the the military military spending act uh usually passes uh with overwhelmingly but with lots and lots of republicans so generally these are this is a bill that progressive democrats vote against because they're not actually excited about spending uh, nearly a trillion dollars on our global war machine. Uh, but then Republicans usually uh, support it. But this was just a case where uh, the Republicans are more interested in pushing a, a more even much, much more aggressive version of uh, what Manchin has proposed. And they're just, you know, they're just not interested in giving um you know, Biden a win, even if it's a win that like politically they would agree with. I'm wondering too, because like, I guess, you know, it, it should be, it's a victory that these climate hawks um, kept Manchin's bill out of the NDAA. But one thing that came up um, on the last time we had a kind of sort of climate focused episode a few weeks ago with uh, Darna Noor from the Boston Globe, that's kind of the sick irony of this is that yes, Manchin's zombie deal is taken out of the NDAA, but you still have this massive um what is it 857.9 billion dollar uh, defense bill and when you point to the role of the united states military as one of the top carbon emitters uh in the world and its role in creating climate change around the world um it's kind of bittersweet right yes mansion's bill is gone from there but there's still this massive massive investment into the u.s military which is increasing the rate of climate change and is substantially more of an investment than what they're investing into actual, you know, climate green climate policies, right? Yeah, I mean, and arguably one of the the core functions of the U.S. military is to protect the global fossil fuel, uh, yeah, uh, trans, you know, distribution uh, me mechanism. And I mean, you know, there's a reason that the United States uh, is heavily involved in the Middle East. Um, and I mean, you know, and it's totally fair to like recognize that energy uh, and its production and distribution is kind of the underlying question for human civilization. So it's not that surprising. You know, I mean, it's like 
plays obviously an exceedingly key role in uh, what Russia is doing with its invasion of Ukraine. And so this stuff is, it's not that this stuff is easy, but yeah, absolutely is the case. Like the military is the, uh, as a kind of an individual entity is the world's largest consumer of uh, fossil fuels. And like there are lots of good people who are interested in trying to kind of make the military more green, but the kind of fundamental argument that uh, the role of the military is not necessarily something that's like consonant with a uh, world without fossil fuel. So, I mean, these are, um, it's the type of thing where it's like, if we didn't have, uh, you know, like a, a, a politics that was, uh, you know, where one party fully represented the interests of the fossil fuel industry, like we could have a, like a reasonable debate. Like there is a reasonable debate to be had between like, say the, progressive wing of the Democratic Party and the more corporate and more military uh, focused military wing of the Democratic Party. Um, and it's a, you know, but that's unfortunately not the, like, the, what the, where the axis of decision making is. One thing I was hoping you could speak to, uh, you mentioned it earlier that Republicans want this osten uh, ostensibly, this, this pipeline or this permitting reform, but they want a much more aggressive version of that. You know, going into a split Congress next year, uh, do you do you think that they'll try to push this in the House and then, you know, see what they can muster in the Senate? And we'll get to the Georgia runoff in a bit because it's now going to be 51-49. Uh, so it's a little bit <laughs> – I wouldn't even say different. It's just one additional Democratic vote next, next to Congress in the Senate. Um, but it does nullify Manchin uh, and Sinema's power. Uh, an ability to hamstring Democrats on certain things. So, do you think, like, what do you what do you expect the Republicans will do in this much more aggressive attempt to to get permit reform? I mean, I have to say that I am like notoriously bad at you know looking into the future. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. And, but like, it's interesting. I mean, it, I think that what you the point that you made is what is one thing that's really important. Uh, and it's why I said in today's newsletter that I call this the end of the Manchin presidency is it's not that Manchin's power has all gone away, but he is no longer the kind of at the fulcrum of the the decision point in the conflict uh, for uh, political decision making. The kind of the the key agent for thwarting the White House agenda now will be House Republicans. And one thing that's like a big deal, for example, with the 5149 in the Senate is it means that right now, because it's a 50-50 Senate, all of the committees have the same number of Democrats and Republicans on them. And now uh, the Democrats, because they have a, a numeric majority, will now be able to have a majority of seats on the committees. And so that changes things. But, you know, like what we're probably going to see is we're going to see kind of like a rotating cast of democratic heels essentially sure like you know maybe there'll be like super exciting mansion cinema team-ups uh but most of the time i think what we'll see is you'll just see that uh, house republicans will try to push stuff and you know just like you know make it much harder for like good legislation to pass uh because it, as opposed to but like whereas i don't think senate democrats are going to let that you know the worst excesses of House Republicans to come through. I mean, what the other thing on the Republican majority in the House is, you know, while we should never, it's a mistake to underestimate 
how bad like the collective effort of a bunch of genuinely stupid and disorganized and mean people uh, can be. They, they are collectively stupid and mean and venal and they don't like each other and they're like they would be much more effective if they like could actually organize but they don't want i mean the whole thing kind of like they're you have these people who not only are not interested in governance but they're like on the edge of straight up some of these are you know they're like lunatics and so the whereas you know the democrats have uh, as a party in congress have kind of real problems uh most of them are generally competent and like interested in having a government that works so uh, it's i'm where i'm hopeful is that kind of there will be democrats in the house that even though they don't have any power kind of formally will be able to get things done just because the republicans will shoot themselves in the foot but that's kind of like the optimistic viewpoint and there are plenty of reasons to be more pessimistic about it but you know we'll get to, we'll get to see i mean one thing that we know is that there will continue to be major crises there'll be climate crises uh you know and these things will precipitate action of some kind or another and there are there are there are very competent conservative and fossil fuel lobbyists waiting in the wings to push stuff and that's where but that's the type of thing where we'll see kind of like where the battles are joined and a lot of it has so so much of it matters to like kind of what the how the white what um position the and stance the white house chooses to take uh you know what uh you can kind of think of it as like what does joe biden think he, he's going to be popular to run for re-election on and so that's one of the reasons that like you know kind of on a uh, just on a straight political standpoint, what the public does and what how, what organizers do and what how people organize uh, really matters for what decisions people in Washington make. Um, this is sort of tangentially related to everything with the bill and everything, but uh, Elon Musk is someone that's been kind of inescapable lately. In a, it's kind of unavoidable to talk about him lately, what with his taking over of Twitter and everything. But I think related to some of the things you're saying, it's it's worth mentioning. You know how how Musk built this brand on basically being this climate warrior kind of savior of humanity type pioneering green technology and electric vehicles uh, etc and now of course because of the woke mind virus he just has no po choice but to support these conservative politicians like ron DeSantis. he's talking about how ron DeSantis is probably is going to be his candidate in the coming election not sure how DeSantis's climate policies uh, match up to the the Musk's uh, previous image that he's kind of carefully and meticulously uh, cultivated, but I'm guessing probably not so great on climate Ron DeSantis. Also something from uh, from this week's uh, Hill Heat, talking about how since, since uh, uh, you know, climate warrior, electric vehicle pioneer, Elon Musk takes over Twitter, now there's this, not only is there a huge uptick and huge surge in, uh, you know, racial slurs, but also a lot of a uh, huge surge in climate denialism and which is like affecting the ability of climate scientists to talk about this issue on Twitter. Do you want to just uh, talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah. I mean, the funny thing is like in some sense, some, I mean, you know, I mean, that's one of the challenges is that uh, saying that you want to do something on climate is good market is 
good marketing for billionaires. And it's something that Naomi Klein has actually done a lot of good writing about and, you know, watching everybody from uh, Richard Branson to Jeff Bezos. Uh, they've all, you know, they've all done this yeah. to Bill Gates. They've all like on this thing where they're like, oh, I'm, you know, putting, I really care about global warming. We're going to solve it. They've all got their and it's special NGOs that, like, kind of must did a better job kind of, of that. Yeah. But um, like, yeah, the article, this was in The Guardian and it's been published in a few other places, was a, a piece about how, yeah, exactly what you said, the climate scientists who kind of built a, like a lot of other uh, communities had a robust and healthy kind of subculture on Twitter uh, have just been barraged by a, a real rise in right-wing climate denial. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's a straight up problem. I mean, Musk has been pretty explicit that he is not opposed to uh, misinformation anymore on his platforms. And uh, it's uh, going to be, I mean, you know, it's the type of thing where like, I, I still have a Twitter account, but I've, set up on Mastodon and I'm kind of working on building a, a, a space there. And I, you know, fortunately I'm old enough that I, I remember life before Twitter, but I, even though I'm something of a, a Twitter addict now. And so, you know, it's like, sometimes you just got to admit that it's like, uh, sometimes like, and it's happened, like you have a favorite bar and like, then it gets bought by some, guy and he and starts inviting nazis into the bar and then it's a nazi bar <laughs> and you just have to be like i you know i love the bar but i gotta go yeah you talk and about the sad. whole you talk about the whole billionaire uh you know climate climate warrior trend it's so funny like, you mentioned jeff bezos i was I, I can't help but laugh like when he frames his whole like vanity fake space travel thing um blue origin or whatever it is as being some, once I was in Earth's atmosphere, then I looked at the planet and I knew how important it was and how we all have to pull it together. It's like, we already knew about this, Jeff. Like, you didn't need to build a spaceship to learn that we all live on the same planet. We have to do something about climate. He's trying to frame this like very obvious vanity, <laughs> just big waste of everyone's time and, and resources uh, to just fly in a plane really high and not even go to space. But framing it as some kind of altruistic. Now I'm see it's the pale blue dot kind of thing. It's like come on, Jeff. Quest, man. Jeff, come on. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I think it's probably not a very good idea for uh, any. I don't think it's good, healthy for human brains to have like that much individual power and wealth. Uh, no. You know, like I think rockets are cool, but I also, you know, there are a lot of cool things that are bad ideas. You know, so. Uh, the, I mean, the fundamental problem I think is that, you know, it's kind of the, is that being a billionaire it requires an extraction of, uh, wealth from the world at a rate that it, it, like, it means that the, our current system, the global economy, like you need it to keep going in the way that it's going. And, uh, so kind of fundamentally, it, it, I would like to believe that there's, you know, some kind of like simple magic version where we like stop using fossil fuels and the you, nobody has to change their lifestyles or anything. But, um, you know, the just the reality is, is that extractive capitalism is not a sustainable thing. And the only way to become a billionaire is to be like 
uh, almost an avatar of that system. Yeah. And you must uphold the system at all costs in order to continue being a billionaire. Right. Um, I mean, that's kind of the one of the, one of many frustrating things about Musk as well as he frames this whole Mars uh, nonsense as being some like climate change thing, like because of the planet is in trouble. We need to make sure we colonize other planets. And it's like no matter how much work you do on Mars, colonizing Mars, and no matter how bad the climate might get on Earth, there is still oxygen here. Like we are we're all here now. <laughs> several billion of us like we instead of moving us to another place we could just be putting these resources into fixing the problem here right now where we all currently are um and if musk had spent maybe some of the last 10 15 years putting these vast resources into that like putting it into for instance public transit instead of these like fake hyperloop projects which are almost designed to halt public transit projects um he could have been putting his vast resources and energy and time and apparently his apparent genius that we're supposed to to, you know worship um he could have been putting that towards fixing the actual problems here on earth right now currently uh but he seems determined to make those problems worse and then you know continue this like completely fake hopeless idea that we're going to be able to transplant people to another planet um, and live in some kind of geodesic <laughs> domes, and that's going to be better for everyone. Like, you know, it's pretty silly. So, so you're saying that you're not a fan? Not a huge fan, no. <laughs> well, I, I told you, Rob, the tweet that I saw from one of the Elon fans uh, in his replies a couple of weeks ago. You better watch out, man. If you keep talking shit, yeah. you're not going to get to go to Mars. Yeah. You have to be nice to him if you want to go, because that's definitely <laughs> on the table right for now. For sure. Everyone's yeah. on the table. If you send a mean tweet, you're out. No, seeing how he's run Twitter over the last couple of weeks and saying, like, what if this, but there was a finite amount of oxygen? Yeah, that sounds like yeah. a really great idea. I would really love yeah, that. Yeah, no, it's really horrifying. Uh, the the one thing that I thought might be interesting is, like, that kind of heel turn that Musk has done from going and kind of be like, oh, like, I care about climate to know, like, actually, I'm, uh, like, some kind of 4chan troll is not that dissimilar from Kirsten Sinema's uh, political art, where she got built her political base by within the progressive movement and once she reached the national stage she's like oh not actually progressive actually like i like sipping wine with billionaires and uh i think that's kind of a good parallel to like if you you know in other words if you think of elon musk kind of as like a uh self-centered um marketing guy that I mean, it, the kind of that process makes a lot more sense that he's like, uh, this is how he got to the top. Uh, there's one thing uh, I did want to talk about with you both, and that is the news out of Georgia last night and how that's going to. Like, you mentioned it earlier, Brad, but I think the broader context, uh, I think, is, is helpful for people. So uh, Raphael Warnock won re-election last night in the Georgia runoff, defeating Herschel Walker, who ran uh, a really strong campaign on issues like who's better, werewolves or vampires. Yeah. Uh, that's I think that's the extent of it. But really, he was just kind of like propped up by Republicans uh, for a while at the end of his camp. Like the last couple of weeks really hasn't been doing many media appearances. He's been sitting with people like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, who did the talking for him. Uh, he just seemed really incoherent and babbled a lot. Uh, and I think that really – once the scrutiny was on, he wasn't kind of riding Kemp's coattails in the general election. We saw that play out last night where he underperformed in areas that he won uh, just a couple weeks ago in November, and Warnock overperformed in areas that he won in November. So people just either stayed home, uh, the third-party vote went Warnock, 
uh, or people just were turned off by everything that they've come to understand about Herschel Walker. Either way, it's a win, and that does impact, like you mentioned, Brad, the the committee breakdowns. I don't think a lot of people really understood how the committees were evenly split uh, last year or the last two years, and this actually does help on things like you know judicial appointments uh, and and nominations to different agencies and bureaus, which because of the split Congress, they're going to have to lean on that a little bit harder now. Uh, because they're not going to get as favorable of legislation through the House that they might want. So they're going to have to you know, rely on uh, bureaucratic powers and executive powers to, to do things. You, you still have the challenge of the Supreme Court, but you know, challenges in court, like people have been complaining for years about Republican judges, Trump nominees, Bush nominees, striking down things that Biden has tried to do, and even the last few years of Obama that he tried to do. So uh, I'm wondering what your guys' takeaways are from that runoff uh, and the road ahead now that we know there's going to be one additional Democratic vote in the Senate. Well, the uh, the glass half empty look is just the reminder that even though Herschel Walker was, I mean, as you described, kind of literally incoherent um, and kind of known to be uh, abusive um, and a liar, um, got 48% of the vote. In. And so there are a lot of people who are just like, you know, at the end of the day, I vote Republican and I just can't uh, support the, um, you know, what I consider to be <laughs> like an extremely corporate moderate uh, Democratic presidency. And... So there's a you know they, there's extreme polarization, uh, especially uh, driven by the right, and uh, like the that that's the kind of like the half empty look, uh, you know the half full look is that uh, the that as you said like uh, Warnock picked up some more and you know one by th- one by three points. So while the number of people who put their you know, morals or principles over kind of their partisan interests was not large. It was in, it was definitely more than zero people. And the other thing that I think is a real important thing that was both true in uh, November elections and uh, today is just the young people keep coming out to vote in uh, surprisingly surprising numbers. Uh, one specific thing that I didn't know until recently about Georgia is that they changed how uh, – they made a, what do you call it, a register, voter registration uh, much closer to automatic. They added to the kind of like the DMV registration. And so that uh, in, dramatically increased the voter rolls in the last few years. And that's one of the things that really helped. I mean, and, and that's just kind of like the thing that we're facing is that so much of what we're going to face on an electoral basis is both a matter of like who the candidates are and uh, what the parties are for, but also just the m- machinery of elections and all these things, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm not saying anything new, but, uh, I think that it's, it'll be interesting to like to see what the, how the Senate, I mean, even though it's the Senate leadership isn't expected to change in any meaningful way, but, you know, we'll see what comes up, uh, a big fight that's coming up very soon and that smarter people than me are worried about is the, the debt ceiling, uh, fight that uh, 
for reasons that are completely unclear, uh, Democrats aren't doing anything about while they still have uh, power. Uh, and it, it could give uh, House Republicans just a, a wild amount of leverage that would be really terrible um, because, uh, you know, they can use that to threaten government shutdowns and, you know, just kind of destroy our ability to spend any meaningful money on like things like the the next COVID pandemic or things like that that are coming down the pike. Yeah. Oh, but were your takeaways? Did you think the uh, the the com- the last minute commercial with uh, the sw- the college swimmer who hates trans swimmers? Do you think that was effective? Yeah. for Herschel Walker. Weird that that's not this the primary political uh, <laughs> cause that people are gravitating to. A weird miscalculation uh, on the part of the the conservative movement. And yeah, it's like, I I agree with you that, you know, there's obviously a lot of benefits and a lot of positive things you can take away from the Democrats managing to sort of stave off what looked at first over the first couple of months of the Biden administration, like they were going to get a historic uh, ass kicking and managing to avoid that. Like you said, judicial appointments. Um, I, I'm sold on the basic idea that for a number of reasons, it's better to have, uh, you know, these kind of corporate liberals in charge rather than conservatives, you know, whether it's climate change where conservatives don't even believe that it is happening or legislating in the opposite direction. You know, there's a number of reasons why I think Democrats are are better. But my issue is, especially I mentioned this after the the midterms, but, you know, when young people are showing up to vote for the Democratic Party and are getting excited about them for these reasons, like because they claim to care about the climate, they care about these other issues that young people are passionate about. This is the problem, though, when Democrats fail to deliver on any kind of a bold vision, Um, when they don't deliver on a bold climate vision. I know they've framed their climate bill as being the most historic climate legislation uh, in the history of the world, and maybe that's true. It's still woefully inadequate. We've talked about that a number of times even if it does a good, do a few good things. You know, when they double and triple down on this this completely out-of-control military spending, foreign military entanglements, you know, Joe Biden has pulled out of Afghanistan, but it seems like the whole mil- uh, security state establishment just wants to pivot towards uh, this kind of new Cold War situation. We, you know, they're, they're passing bills to break railway strike legislation, Biden's Biden's meager efforts to uh, eliminate student debt or take a, a chunk out of people's student debt are being held up in the courts and doesn't even know if it's going to happen. His drug policy that they touted as being historic is not going anywhere near far enough. And I guess this is my problem is that, you know, this is where the cynicism sets in when young people get involved with like electoral politics, whether it's in the United States or Canada and support these kind of liber- liberal parties who use who use progressive language about things like climate or social justice or the military or any of this stuff. Um, and then when they fail to deliver on that or when they, they legislate in the opposite direction, that's where that deep cynicism sets in. That's when people become completely paralyzed and don't want to participate in this uh, in the whole system anymore. That enables the right and enables the right wing as they, it allows them to accumulate more power and continue doing all the bad stuff even more than the than the Democrats do. So I guess that's it. It's like congratulations to the Dems for do it for for holding the Senate, um, but they still do need to do what they can to deliver on a on a bold agenda, or else they're not going to be able to continue um, delivering those kind of results. You know that cynicism is going to set in for young people that supported them this time around. Yeah, and thankfully, Republicans have have really just in many areas and many elections really gone all in on just really ineffective strategies. Yeah. Uh, like 
you know, I kind of alluded to the, the anti-trans collegiate sports thing. Like we, I mean, we talked about it before women's sports has always been a punchline, especially to conservatives. You're, you expect that to be, yeah. What, now that all of a sudden it's the that's primary, going to get, yeah. the women's sports to get people to the polls. Yeah. yeah. They don't give a shit. It's like easy to post about on Facebook or like react to, but it's not going to, you know, inspire them to make a voting plan and show up or wait in the rain for three hours to vote. Like they're not going to care that much. They're not offering their voters anything, so I think Democrats taking advantage of that while they can is great. But like you're saying, you got a short window there because eventually, when you, you continually fail to deliver on these bold promises, people are going to get cynical. People are going to tune out. You, you just you really you really can't afford that. So I I, I worry that these types of wins and even like the midterm shaping up the way it did, which is I think good for Dems, definitely not the worst case scenario everyone was worrying about. Uh, I I don't I don't know what lessons they're going to take away from that in you know the elite democratic circles. Is it going to be, hey, we got lucky here, or oh, they love us, and I'm 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 concerned based on how they've operated over the past two decades. It's, it's going to be the latter. I think that's a safe bet. Well, I want to uh, give a uh, plug for the documentary that I saw last night. We recall To the End, which is by uh, the documentarian who did uh, Knock Down the House, which followed oh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the AOC campaign and the campaign of other uh, kind of uh, left-wing female candidates. In, and it's uh, this movie uh, follows four women, young women, including AOC, who were leaders in the movement to build the Green No Deal and, and to pass it. And it really gets exactly to uh, these questions that you were raising right here of like, what does it mean to be a young person engaging in our politics now? And how do you engage when the like the Democratic establishment and so much of the Democratic Party is opposed to uh, what you're asking for or demanding? And how do you build power? Like, in other words, these, you know, you literally, what's the crazy in the documentary, uh, you get to see like climate activists, um, you know, showing up and confronting Joe Manchin when he's driving his Maserati, uh, through DC. And you get to see them confronting, uh, you know, Dianne Feinstein and confronting, uh, Nancy Pelosi and confronting Joe Biden, you know, and also confronting all of the corporate media and confronting all the corporate lobbyists and confronting all of the Republicans um, and why they're doing that. Um, you know, it's really difficult for me to even talk about as someone who's now, uh, you know, 20, 25 years younger, older than some of these um, people who, you know, all they've known as children their entire lives are, you know, years of endless wildfires and floods and uh, they are not and choose, you know, making the choice not to be cynical and making the choice not to give up hope um, because they, you know, they decide that they don't have that choice. And uh, it's really uh, quite inspiring to watch. It's also just like a very well-made movie. If you care about kind of like the craft of filmmaking, it's it's really well cut. So I totally recommend it. It's coming out this Friday. Uh, it's called To the End. Um, and so I really recommend it because it's like, you know, these are, it's a story of people who are how, confronting that fact at, at the, like the highest level. 
and it, you know, so it's following the leaders of Sunrise Movement, the leaders of Justice Democrats, uh, and it's really you know, so it's and like you know, and getting to see Alexander Ocasio Cortez in the halls of Congress, and so it's just, it's a really uh, it brought me back to uh, why I engage in this fight, and that and some of it is just like the reason that I can't let myself be cynical and give up is because I know that there are other people who are in harder circumstances who aren't giving up either. Totally. That's, yeah, that's, that's an important thing to remind yourself of. And what I try to, uh, not to be sorry to be redundant, but remind myself of as well is, uh, we might lose a lot of these battles and, you know, we might not get the outcomes that we want and things might go south from here, and that's very possible. But um, at the end of the day, I just want to be able to say I tried. At least I did everything I could to stop it. Uh, I wasn't part of the problem. So, like, kind of giving in to defeatism, I don't really think is an option. I think people, especially on, uh, like, the, the, the sentiment of climate despair that so many people feel, it's just, it's too easy then for the people who are making the problem worse to do whatever they want if you just give up. Yeah, and you know, I would add as well that like you saw in the freak out about these rail strikes and the possible economic consequences that these rail strikes would have, how much power working people have to um, change the course of what, what our government is doing politically. And the idea that especially when it comes to climate that the only thing we can do is vote for liberals. So, well, they believe in climate change and the other guys don't, so I'm going to vote for them. And then you kind of just go home at the end of the day. That's still kind of a losing scenario, um, considering even our, like, it's bipartisan across the ideological spectrum that we're kind of doubling down on this kind of extractive capitalism. If we might, if we might do making a few little tweaks around the edges with electric vehicles or infrastructure, green infrastructure or whatever. But that's the reality is that it's not going to be through voting uh, for the right person that's going to, uh, you know, really put a dent in this crisis or really start moving us in the direction that we need to be going. And the way that's going to happen is when working people realize the power that they have collectively to withhold their labor and shut down our the entire economy, the entire global economy. This is like within within our power to do. And ultimately, the people that are kind of pulling the strings in our society, in the political elites, business elites, that's the only thing they're ever going to really listen to, you know, is when the when the line stops going up, when working people organize and strike, they can stop the line from going up. And that's when, you know, that's when working people have leverage. Um, so yes, we should be voting for uh, people that support green legislation. But ultimately, that's where the real change is going to come from, from people collectively organizing and realizing the power that we have to control our destiny. Well, and like, and in fact, I think you made a really good point about, you know, this question of like, who, if people are like trying to figure out who they should be voting for is uh, look for people who are actually, um, you know, at least rhetorically on the side of working people. Uh, and then ideally find people who are actually like fighting for them. Um, and that is one of the, the kind of, it's not enough, but one of the bright spots in the nation's capital, and I think that there's probably better things happening uh, at the local and state level, is that there are like actual there are a lar more democratic socialists in Congress than there have ever been. I think lit ever, um, it, like you have Greg Kassar who was elected, uh, and, and he was a labor organizer in Austin, 
and he is now representative of Congress. You have Cory Bush. You have Summer Lee, who is an organizer from uh, the Pittsburgh area. And so the, uh, the it's a small number of people and a small percentage of the Democratic Party in Congress. But uh, one of the great points that was made in uh, the that documentary to the end was uh, uh, one of the activists was just saying, like, we're the only ones with ideas. And so that's one of the reasons if we, you know, when we push our idea, ideas and we prove that they're politically winning ideas, then a lot of the establishment will fall in line because they just don't have ideas. Now, I mean, like there are kind of like ideological and kind of structural reasons why, um, you know, certain forms of reform are anathema, but like, it's amazing how true that is, that simple fact. And like all of the good things that exist within the the IRA are entirely because of the the push for the Green New Deal. Like that's the only reason that those uh that there's even anything that's good, basically. I mean, you know, it's a mat something of an exaggeration, but like it's not that much of an exaggeration. I think it's a that's a positive note to to wrap up on. I mean that that is those are the people we were celebrating when they won in November, and those are the people we'll keep an eye on when the new Congress is sworn in in January. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, where can people find Hill Heat and more of your work? Uh, well, it's uh, Hill Heat is at hillheat.substack.com. Um, I'm Climate Brad on various social media platforms. Uh, including Twitter, but also on Mastodon and Facebook. And uh, that's that's it. And, you know, you can just send me a line, uh, climatebrad at Gmail, if you want to chat. And, uh, yeah, that's. I hope you sub- people subscribe to my newsletter. It's. I hope it's reasonably entertaining and informative. And it's uh, never sponsored by Chevron, which is my, my big... Uh, <laughs> My, my big professional swipe differentiator. It, swipe at Politico. Unfortunately, this show uh, Politico, is... Politico, but... Axios, Morning yeah. Console. The Insurgents Podcast. The semaphore. Yeah. Oh, the Semaphore stuff uh, right away. The New like, York Times. Into... Uh, the New York Times Aramco spreads have been amazing. <laughs> just, it's really just a, just so great to see your, like, journalists murdering petro-dictatorship ads in the New York Times every day. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, like Rob was saying, the, the Chevron sponsors us, but also um, the the MBS is on our board, so we can't really. Yeah, can't our hands are kind of tied on that one. But. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah we can't really touch that one. I'd like to keep my limbs. Yeah, don't don't go to any embassies and avoid those. <laughs> That's where they get you. <laughs> Brad, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Cannon our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening.